Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast, providing you with insightful commentary and developments in the world of healthcare leadership. To learn more, visit ACHE.org. And without further ado, your host. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to an exciting episode of the Healthcare Executive Podcast from ACHE. I'm your host, Eric Sperling. So excited for our guest today. Uh, big fan of Dr. Hakeem Ulushe. He is an internationally recognized astrophysicist, science TV personality, and global education advocate who has had a long, distinguished career in academia and scientific research. Most recently, he was stationed at NASA headquarters, where he served as an astrophysicist and space science education lead for NASA's Science Mission Directorate. In addition, he was a professor of aerospace, physics, and space sciences at the Florida Institute of Technology since 2007. I'm going to keep going, Dr. Oso. Hang on for a minute. Dr. Ulishe has earned three degrees a Bachelor of Science degree in Physics and Mathematics from Tougaloo College and Master's degree and Doctorate in Physics from Stanford University. After completing his education, Dr. Ulushe worked at one of Silicon Valley's most successful companies and did research on manufacturing computer chips. His inventions can be found in computer chips still used today. He also holds 12 now, I believe it's 12, patents and is the author of the memoir, A Quantum Life, My Unlikely Journey from Street to the Stars. Last but not least, Dr. Ulushe will join ACHE as a featured faculty for the 2022 Congress on Healthcare Leadership that will be held in person March 28th through the 31st in Chicago. And you can, of course, learn more and register now at ACHE.org slash Congress. Dr. Ulushe, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, sir, for having me. And I got to correct one thing. It's not a correction. It's an addition. And that is, is that I've just started at George Mason University as a new Robinson professor. Mm. Uh, And so it's affiliated with the Department of Physics and Astronomy and the provost there. And so George Mason University, Patriots. Congratulations. Let's let's do it. Yes. And congratulations on publishing this book this year. So I want to acknowledge that. Yes, for our listeners. Thank you. you. Absolutely. So who may be meeting you for the first time. I know the book goes into a lot of... uh, you know, your personal story. So if you Mm. can kind of give us a brief overview of that. Well, you know, the story that you just told of my career is the story of this guy. And Mm. before I was this guy, I was a kid and I changed my name. That kid's name was James Edward Plummer Jr. And it's the story of that kid becoming me. And what happened in my life is that, you know, I was torn between these two forces. In essence, I grew up in a crime family on my father's side of the family. You know, my father was an entrepreneur and, you know, he passed away a decade ago. But if he were alive today, he'd be tickled pink to know that his business is now legal in many states, especially in the West. And uh, on my mother's side, you know, my my cousins, my first cousins um, in, in Los Angeles, you know, they were members of the Crips gang. So I found myself on the one hand, being torn between being a young nerd, right? Who was curious about the universe, fell in love with books and loved to read and what my family and my community were giving me, which I call crime school. And I also found myself uh, unprotected as a child. My parents divorced when I was four years old. And for the next decade, we moved literally every year and often multiple times a year. And near the end of it, I, I was left alone with other families, right? And so there was a 16 month period between the ages of 11 and 13, where I lived in nine different households and attended five different schools across three states. 
So by the time I'm a pubescent young man, 13, 14, you know, I'm carrying a gun. Uh, uh, I was incorporated into my father's business from the age of nine. So I, you know, had my own business and this was my life. Um, now, at the same time, like I said, I was a nerd. I was my high school valedictorian. I was in the all-state band. I won first place in the state science fair for writing a computer program that calculated relativity, right? So, you know, you know, you find yourself, uh, and, and, and you know what I, sh you know, what, what my life is, I look at it, you know, it just struck me right now. You know, typically when you think of my life, you think of the kid from the hood, right? Because that's who I was. But that's not where I ended up. So really, I'm the vice president. I'm the CEO. Because you know what? They did crime, too. <laughs> and we just talked about now. We just talked about absorbing the present moment and really understanding yeah. that. You know, you just talked about some of the challenges that you've had to overcome on your path. And in healthcare leadership, we talk about all the time the need for things like resilience, agility. Yeah all these other traits that yeah. you need to be successful uh, during your career, during difficult times. So what traits do you feel most help you persist in your own career? And how do you recommend others cultivate these skills? It's not that easy to just develop resilience if you've never had to face anything like that. Exactly. You're, 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 you hit the nail right on the head, right? And so I had preparation for resilience. I had resilience training. Uh, you know, living in those inner cities was tough enough, right? I had to deal with humans that were... And I don't um, think you mentioned what were those cities? I mean, I know you... Oh, yeah. So I lived in... Yeah, I lived in South Central Los Angeles. I lived in New Orleans East and New Orleans Ninth Ward. And I lived in um, South Park area of Houston and went to school in the third ward. The third ward has since gentrified, but at the time, you know, it was like the fifth ward. Yeah. Uh, this is the late 70s. So, uh, you know, very, very tough neighborhoods. And, you know, when you think about these neighborhoods, you think about poverty. And one of the worst forms of poverty is poverty of dignity. And the there are young men who they are able to get their I am somebody-ness, right, out of just being tough guys, out of being bullies and that sort of thing, right? And, you know, if you're in the hood, then you have your family, your friends, you know, or you join a gang, that sort of thing to have protection. But I, I didn't do any of that. I didn't have my family behind me. I certainly wasn't joining a gang. So I was solo out there dealing with these cats. And, and um, so, you know, that changes. It doesn't really matter who you are. You're going to respond to that. And so in my case, I put on a suit of armor of toughness, right? To, to, to build resiliency against that. But then there are these other forces. So when I got to Mississippi to rule America, you had to work. It wasn't the same sort of violence and drugs and things coming at me in the country as it was in the city, but it was hauling pulp wood, working in those fields, sh shoveling that dirt, right? And there was zero sympathy. And so what do I do when I leave Mississippi? I go to the United States military, right? I join the Navy. I find myself in a program run by the Marine Corps. And they don't have any sympathy either. So by the time I find myself in a university, right, I know how to push myself beyond my limits. But I know how to ignore my pain. But that did not come naturally. You're absolutely right. How do you develop it? If it's natural in you, I think you're lucky, right? Yeah. And I mean... You can read, you can read books, you can take courses, but yeah, it won't, unless you're facing those challenges head on. Um, one of the other challenges, I, you know, you've mentioned you faced head on and something we talk about all the time on this, on this podcast is, is uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and then racism. Um, yeah, so yeah. can you talk a little bit about how you feel, you know, that 
specifically impacted your journey? Yeah. So on, on the one hand, right, there's just my family history. So as an example, my father was born in 1933 in rural Mississippi. He dropped out of school, his formal schooling, when he was nine years old. He left home when he was 13. He went away to the city, to New Orleans, to park cars for 13 cents a day, excuse me, 25 cents a day. My mother, she got pregnant at 16 with my older sister. Her mother also got pregnant at 16. My sister got pregnant at 16, and all three of them dropped out of high school. So the family, so the question I have is, is my father sufficiently intelligent to have completed high school? Are my family members, is it a matter of intelligence? Is it a matter of working hard? And I'll, I will submit to you that the answers are hell no, right? On the one hand, you have to be it to see it. And, you know, I just happen to be a, a, a weirdo, right? I happen to be a weird, strange kid that wanted to do whatever the people around me were doing. I didn't want to do that. Right. I wanted to do I wanted to diverge from what everyone else was doing and find my own space. Right. And so I, you know, I was attracted to the natural world. Um, but, yeah, so at, at every stage in my life, when I got to rural Mississippi, I live in a completely segregated community. It was literally all black Heidelberg High School, a mile and a half down the road from all white Heidelberg Academy. Now, I would say my junior year, we got this one guy, one white guy, James Roberts. God bless him because <laughs> we all grew to love him. But, oh, man, did he have to have some resilience and perseverance to make it through the bullies who, you know, showed up when he first arrived. Uh, but he did, you know. Um, and so, you know, I'll give you a quick story. So when I was going out for eighth grade football, my friends and I decided that we were going to meet at the one doctor in town's office at the same time to get our physicals done. So I go there. I, I, I moved there from the city, right, to Mississippi. They were from there. I go to the doctor, get my physical, go to school. I see them. I was like, where were you guys? You didn't come. And they were like, what? No, where were you? You didn't come. The year was 1980. We figured out that what had happened is the reason why we missed each other is because I went to the white folks waiting room. I didn't know any better. So I just walked through the front door, right? And sat in the waiting room. No one said anything to me. This Dr. Parker, 1980? 1980. Listen, wow. in two, as recently as 2007, wow. you know, my mother would send me our hometown newspaper and they would publish the graduating class photos. So in Jasper County, Mississippi, where I went to high school, there was East Jasper and West Jasper. The same thing on both sides, all black, all white, all black, all white. So anyway, let me get to the crux of the story. The number of times I was stopped by the police, asked to lie face down on the pavement, get searched, all of that, too many to count. The number of times that, uh, you know, for another example, it's in the book, the story's in the book, but I had dropped out of Tougaloo College and I got, in a job, got a job working as a janitor in a hotel, the Ramada Renaissance. And I was so broke at this point in my life that the way I would eat, and I'm not talking about eat breakfast, eat lunch, eat dinner, I'm talking about eat, is I would eat the leftovers of people when they order room service and what they left, I would eat their leftovers. So one day I think that, oh, now my big break is here. A bellhop got fired. I was making $4 an hour, getting 20 some hours. Wait, wait. The bellhop got fired. If I be can become a bellhop, I can get $100 in tips in a day. This is my big break. But they looked at me and they were like, dude, you are not front door guy, right? You you belong in the back of the house. So that's when I realized I can't go from janitor to bellhop. But a buddy of mine 
He said to me, a graduate student buddy in 2013, I told him this story in the 90s. He said to me, Hakeem, you know that story you told me in the 90s about being a bell, about being a janitor, couldn't move up the bellhop? I'm like, yeah. He says, I've told that story to so many people because to me, it encapsulates what it's like to be a black man in America. The person standing that you were standing before who was evaluating you didn't realize that you're a Stanford PhD physicist. All they could see was that guy right then and right there. Yeah, racism is something that exists. Systemic racism is something that exists. But there are so many levels of challenge that we have in our lives, you know, that at a certain point, you know, I, had, I just had to say, so what? You know, this is the hand I'm dealt. I couldn't get, I couldn't choose where I was born and what society I was born into, but I can certainly choose what I do about it, right? And so it's like first put on your own face mask and then start helping others put their face mask on. And so that's been my mission. Once I realized, once I became educated and realized how different communities don't really understand each other and how going from lower economic class through education is really attainable and possible. But when you're in that position, there are certain forces that make it seem impossible. I could help people to, to, to bridge that gap. And would you say, is that the advice you would give? Because we have so many healthcare leaders who listen to this podcast is, and when, when addressing these systematic inequities, um, when it comes to DEI issues is, is put the face mask, like you said, on yourself first, and then understand mm. it. And then you can do a better job of addressing it. Well, you know what, man, you know what, I, I, I don't know about that. But I can tell you what fixed me and my weird ideas. Yeah. <laughs> because listen, when I moved out of Mississippi at the age of 24, I really thought every, all white people are racist, right? And if you were from somewhere in Asia, you might as well have been a different from another planet, right? That's how well I knew you. I didn't know you. But what changed my perspective was actually knowing people, right? Sitting in your house with you, you know, attending your funeral with you, you know what I mean? Being really knowing you real life. Let's fall in love with each other platonically. You know what I mean? Let, let's get to know each. And when you do that, you realize like literally, man, if, if we hung out one day, we'll be with the world's top physicists. The next day we'll be with some tribesmen somewhere. The next day I'll be deep in the hood. The next day I'll be with a billionaire and we're all just people. You know, I, I don't know the answer to these things, right. but you know, it's, 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 it's such a complex thing. Right. And so, it, you know, if we're looking for an easy solution, it's not an easy solution and it might not be an instant solution uh, because good people will do bad things, not even knowing they're doing bad things. Right. And then there's other people who are so uh, eager to be offended. Right. And so, you know, it's a spectrum. Everything is a spectrum. Right. So I think that if we could have understanding on both sides and try, you know, but we're not always trying to to to, to bridge gaps, understanding. And, you know, those of us who've had training, you know, you go to the military, you get certain kind of training and now you have some insight in the way to do things in the world. You come out and you look at the other people, and you're like, what's wrong with them? But you can't tell them. Right. Or, for example, I go get training. And one of the things I got trained in is problem solving. What's the first step in problem solving? state the problem without placing blame mm. now go out in the regular world what's the first thing somebody people do when there's a problem who that's the first word they said who why you know <laughs> but it doesn't get to solving the problem 
Right. I think uh, you, you, you hit the nail right on the head there. Like it, it is not an easy solution. And from what I have heard and in my experience, like nobody has figured it out yet either. So let's, you know, I want to move on to mentorship. Um, yes, sir. You were fortunate. Um, I have in, you know, your bio here, you know, you had a, you found a dedicated mentor in your field who was Art Walker. Um, you discussed in the book and in your universe, how he personally contributed to your career. Um, you have spoken about your own outreach to students of all ages, encouraging them to pursue STEM careers. So can you share more with us about the importance you place on the mentor mentee relationship? Oh yeah, it, it is. It is absolutely 100% vital. Uh, when people, you know, I, I don't like to give myself too much credit for, you know, because I, I know the struggles, right? When, when it's, it's, you know, being Michael Jordan, I'm not Michael Jordan, but Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan. When they, you ever saw a highlight reel of Michael Jordan missing game winning shots? No, <laughs> uh, nobody remembers. Maybe two or three, but maybe that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the number you miss is typically way greater yeah. than the number that you make. Uh, and so people only see the, the wins, but, uh, you know, so I'm aware of my struggle. And so I say I made it with hope, hustle and help. And one of the best pieces of help that I got was from Art Walker. There were many, many people, many, many people. Right. But Art Walker showed me a different way of being. He was like a father to me. Art Walker was the one who showed, taught me how to be a gentleman. Uh, he taught me how to be a scholar. Uh, and this is just from being in his presence for, you know, six, seven years. Um, and, you know, a certain uh, self-respect and dignity, you know, that he he helped to instill in me. And in fact, you know, many times in my early career, if I had to give a public talk, because remind you, when I when I stepped into Stanford University, no one could understand me when I spoke because I was so country. Right. <laughs> my, everything was so fast. I didn't hit my consonants. Um, and so, you know, I had to, like, learn how to be in this world effectively. Let's talk about your, you know, you've so many achievements and on this road to success. Uh, what drove you to share your personal story now? We, you and I got to yeah. discuss a little bit about, you know, physics and timing and all that stuff. But what, yeah. what drove you to share that now? It was um, the fact that people asked for it. So, uh, you know, I never the second I got into Stanford, I realized that I need to keep my past secret. Or I felt like I need to keep it a secret. These people would never accept me if they know who I really am, what I've really been through. And even, you know, keeping a secret, it was tough. Okay. Uh, you know, if, if you're familiar with code switching and that sort of thing. Um, but what happened is, is that, you know, I, I started teaching as a graduate student. And I started to notice all these people, you know, even when I was working in Silicon Valley, I would teach at this junior college, Foothill College. And people would come back to me and they would say, hey, you know, man, I, I didn't realize I could do science. I didn't know it was so cool and I could understand it. So now because of you, I'm going back to school and I'm going to, you know, become an engineer or this, that and the other. Right. And so I <clears throat> then when I started doing television, the same thing would happen. I'd be out in the mall or out at a restaurant. Somebody would stop me and I could tell they're from my type of community, you know, undereducated, whatever race, you know, and they would be like, yeah, same thing. And so I realized so many people were saying to me, Hakeem, I thought I was dumb until I saw you or until I met you. Right. And so um, people wanted to know, how did I get here? Because I would drop hints of my, the level of being undereducated that I was. Right. But 
I knew there was another story to be told because there's so many people that feel that they're disqualified. Like early in the thing, I said, yeah, I'm the story. It's the story. It sounds like the story of a hood, but it's really your VP, right? Yeah, the the average person isn't out here being a criminal when they're young. But the thing about it is, is that it's only certain segments of our population that think to themselves, oh, I did these things. So now, now I am disqualified. Right now, I can't be this or that because, you know, I hang out with your presidents and your vice presidents and your top scientists and your politicians. And, you know, when I tell my story, half of them pull me to the side and go, dude, let me tell you my story. Right. And and, and so, uh, you know, we're all the same is what I want people to see in a way, even though we're all unique. You know, we're, we're still all the same in our humanity. Um and in the very, you know, nobody's more criminal, nobody's more ignorant, you know, it, it's, you know, as a professor, I see thousands of people every year. And I'm telling you, you know, it's, it's all that stuff, these ideas we have in our mind, they're bogus, you know, but what I want to do is uplift everyone. I want to, to the extent that I can, you know, Dr. you know, I, I, I feel like Eric, I feel like every time you ask me a question, I end up just talking about something else. I don't <laughs> I, did, I told you, I am just grateful to have the opportunity to be speaking with an astrophysicist. And I did I did what, you know, I think a lot of people do. They start researching, they start watching, and I've become such a fan of yours. Um, oh, and I'm so you. excited. Um, I'm so excited for, for everyone involved with this ACHE because, you know, you will be speaking there at Congress. Um, yes. If you're just listening, Dr. Akeem Ulishay, the author of A Quantum Life, My Unlikely Journey from the Street to the Stars, uh, internationally recognized astrophysicist, science TV personality, global education advocate, and will be at ACHE, the upcoming Congress um, on healthcare leadership. That, again, will be held in person March 28th through the 31st in Chicago. So I encourage all of you to register. Uh, registration is open now at ache.org slash Congress. Um, Dr. O. Akeem, again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending the time just sharing some of your journey. And I know how important it really is. Like you just said, that was the last thing you talked about, but how important it is for others to hear your story um, and the inspiration you're giving them. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for thinking of me. And I am so looking forward to seeing everyone live. All right. Thanks to all our listeners. And we'll see you again soon on the Healthcare Executive Podcast. This has been the Healthcare Executive Podcast, brought to you by the American College of Healthcare Executives. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes or your podcasting app of choice. And for more information, find us online at ACHE dot org.